and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll discuss how data, AI, and advanced voice technology and voice devices are at the foundation of the next phase of digital transformation. Today, I'm joined by one of the world's leading authorities on the current and future voice-first revolution, Brian Romley. I have known Brian for several years, and he's always been in the forefront of what's taking place at the intersection of data, AI, and voice. Brian's natural inquisitive nature has led him from building payment and advanced learning applications to be one of the first to understand the power of voice in the digital world, dating back 30 years. A prolific researcher and writer of hundreds of articles on the subject of voice, Brian is currently working on a book entitled The Last Interface. It is always a great pleasure to pick Brian's brain. So welcome, Brian, to Banking Transformed. I know that, you know, we interchange quite a bit, but mostly through email and through DM on Twitter or different ways, but we don't have nearly as many chances to talk together as I'd like. And uh, we keep on trying to show up at the same events, and we haven't succeeded in that either. So to get us started, and for those people on in our listening audience that don't really know who you are, can you give me a little bit about your background and your history with voice? Well, Jim, thank you so much for having me here. You know, um, it really is a lot of convergences that have brought me to the financial world, banking world, credit card payments world, and voice. They actually connect in ways that I think very few people understood back in the 70s when I sort of gotten into this and uh, is now a lot more apparent. Banking and finance and money has always been about technology. And I think a lot of folks kind of miss that because it's sort of like a rubber band that pulls whoever is creating the financial system forward by the technology that is in its wake, you know? So when I jumped into the credit card business, uh, and that's on the merchant processing side in the 1980s, it came from a computer angle. And that was the credit card was essentially being used as a telephone directory system. You would look on under these uh, flimsy white pages to see if a card was removed from the uh, system that last 24 hours. They were called the hot list or the hot sheets. <laughs> and then you would call a number and get a verification on a credit card transaction. It was ridiculous. And so uh, myself and quite a few others found a way to make that banking electronic. And um, we're living in the wake of that. That's free technology from IBM, the Magstrip, and AT&T Bell Laboratories, the entire network of authorization systems and the, the devices that ultimately came out from Verifon. Voice also, um, and I learned about that at Bell Laboratories. Uh, I grew up in central New Jersey in the 1970s and 1980s, and parents of my friends worked at these places and I got to spend a lot of time there, my summers and off hours, learning about technology. I also became enamored by voice because it's a tool that nature has endowed upon us as our primary communication system. And I believe that we took a sidetrack with our thumbs or our fingers, originally 10 fingers, now down to our thumbs and gesturing to try to communicate with the computer. And the only reason it happened is the computer couldn't understand us. It couldn't understand our intents and our meanings. And so we are finally in the epoch, Jim, where the computer can understand not only our words, 
but our intent and our meanings. And we're going to slowly egress away from the idea of having to sift and sort every bit of information in a Google search and what I call thumb clawing at a glass screen to get to our information. And we'll just ask. And it's not asking in a sense of, you know, direction. It's more the system tracks you, follows you, knows what you like, and you're really merely having a conversation with a colleague. So that's kind of how I got here. It's my connection from the past. And these things converge together. Um, the web, the thing that drew the web together was pay-per-click advertising. The thing that will drive voice first, that's what I call this in a, as a collection and voice, you know, voice transactions, voice commerce. The thing that drives it together is voice commerce. And that means that we're nearly going to ask the system to produce what we want. You know, device, order me a pizza. I don't want to say any device name because I'll activate it. Let's just call it George today. Uh, George, order me a pizza and you get a pizza. The context is already known. It knows what your best pizza is. It knows your favorite transaction mechanism. And it does the transaction very much like you would see in an Uber, but profoundly more simple. A lot less thumb clawing at glass screens. So that's who I am. I talk to computers. <laughs> so it's interesting because the voice devices, as you've pointed out in numerous different channels, the sale of those has grown faster than any other technology in history. So faster than phones, faster than anything else, the dispersion and distribution of the devices is out there. Very infrequently has the consumer embraced something before we've really developed the best solutions for that device. Exactly. Which is crazy. I mean, but the problem is we use our voice devices for basically menial tasks. Play this song. Play this music. Set a timer. Turn, set a set timer. A timer. <laughs> oh, by the way, trivia, answer this question. And it's all in a typical, what I'll call old-style Google um, yes. framework where it's I ask, it tells. You, um, two years ago, did me a favor that I still use quite a bit. And you developed a scenario. I developed a script. You did the audio where basically it was a whole new take on the voice device where the voice device, instead of being asked questions, acted as my concierge and, and set me through a day based on what it knew about me. So yes. in that whole context, how does the power of AI and voice make this even a more powerful channel? Uh, Jim, that's a wonderful question. You know, I really believe that we are not even at the Apple One. We're really at the punch card era of the voice first revolution, if we were to look at where we are in the timeline of computers. So we're very, very early. And yes, these devices that are out there, I can imagine why people think I'm a little bizarre because they are extremely limited and they have very little scope. And you don't know the boundaries of what it can and cannot do. And that's a fundamental flaw with the way these systems are designed, app stores, why we have app stores and skills. It doesn't make any sense. There's no monetization for developers. They can't really make an earning income to develop utility in these systems. So the conversation is how humans interact and survive. We are always in pursuit of a conversation, whether we know it or not. And we anthropomorphize anything that we can anthropomorphize. And of course, if we're speaking to something, we're going to give it an anthropomorphic interaction. So the designers that are working in this today realize that the conversation, an anthropomorphic conversation, an interactive, high personality, not 
obtrusive, a personality that fits your Myers-Briggs so that you actually love that personality. It's in simpatico with you that you can have, I just imagine anybody listening to us, think of your best friend and best assistant and just somebody who just understands and gets you and imagine that they already can anticipate the things that you would normally do and do it in a way that's not creeping you out. Now, when we start talking about that, we're talking about high sensitive information, more context than we've given any technology company in history, far more than what we've seen currently. And so how do we protect that? Well, first off, we have to establish identity for that person. Second off, I believe in something called hyperlocal. And I really believe your context, your personalized context should not and cannot and should never be in the cloud. And so as we build these systems, I personally build them in my garage lab to be hyper-local. That means none of my contacts can ever be hacked and it never goes to a cloud. In fact, Alfred and Agatha, my two primary, well, there are others, they're going to get mad at me, my two primary systems that I'm using, they're fully conversational systems. None of their data ever connects to the internet. The only way it goes to the internet is through an encrypted agent. It does one task and then it disappears. It doesn't repeat and it only uh, puts the results under the door in an encrypted envelope. And then Agatha and uh, Alfred can discern whether they even want to open the envelope. So there's no way to hack it. And this is vitally important. Yeah, so what you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, is that it accesses data as needed. Yes. And deploys it as desired by the user. So, you know, the challenge I have, I, I, you know, you remember building that little Siri example that I have. Oh, yeah, yeah. The reality is, and I tell people, I said, it may sound very interesting and maybe way in the future, but the data is out there. And that, that's what is frustrating me is that the ability to tell me if you took, oh, by the way, do you want to know the social media interactions for John Brown, who you're having lunch with today, and knowing where John wants to go to dinner, knowing what's missing from my pantry and what's been depleted from my refrigerator, knowing what recipes and what dinners I'd like to have and giving suggestions, that information is all out there. Now, it's all over the place, yeah, but it's out there. And you see platforms like Uber taking the first steps on some of these things where you're in a car. And, and this week I was in uh, Miami. And as soon as I got in the car, you know, it does the normal things. But it also said, welcome to Miami. Would you like some suggestions on what you can do? Now, that's the first time I've ever had that interaction. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's but they beautiful. also will say, oh, do you also want restaurant recommendations? Well, they've built a, a partnership with Open Table, So they know what kind of food I like. They actually came to me and said, would you like some sushi recommendations? Well, because when I travel, invariably, I usually end up at a sushi restaurant for no other reason <laughs> than it's one of the healthier choices I have, I think. Oh, yeah. But when you look at that, when you talk about the voice-first revolution, is that what you mean? Yes, absolutely. You know, and and what I've built and, and I live in uh, on a daily basis, and I can do this with anybody, uh, given the funding and getting me out of a garage and get me back in a startup or at a legacy company. I don't know. I mean, people want me to write books. I'm writing books. I'm trying to build it. The world I live in is you give me seven months with anybody following them on their shoulder, essentially 
looking at everything they do. Again, understand this is hyper-local. It's not going anywhere. And I would not advise anybody doing this and put it up in the cloud. But everything you do, your interactions, this particular conversation I'm decoding from speech to text so that I have an archive. And so essentially... Everything you do, everything you say, everything you heard, every book, every magazine, every video, everything you're interacting with is now available for you in your context. So let's take a Einsteinian thought experiment and go back in time. Imagine the day you're born to the day you leave. This is all recorded, everything. And it's done with integrity and ethics and a social contract. And there's a lot of ways we can change the view of this if it's done the right way. And that's why you don't want the wrong companies doing it. And it's kind of why I'm in my garage doing it. So imagine all of that context is in one place. So when you show up in Miami, Jim, whispering in your ear will be, you know, Bill Smith, his wife and him just celebrated their 25th anniversary. So remember to, to note that. And uh, uh, Bill's son, Eric, is just made the team uh, college football. And, you know, on and on. Now, this sounds trivial. But these are the interactions that define human life. These are the things that create conversations and maintain conversations. And then on that, I'm giving you the trivial. And then we can go wider and wider because we always go from the trivial to the wide. We meet people. We have a trivial conversation, nice weather, great tie, whatever. And then we start getting into the meat of conversations. And these systems can do this right at this moment. You can have full contextual conversations, not question and answer, Right at this moment, if I can do it in my garage and I'm a really bad solderer and I code really ugly code and I'm hacking this junk together with Raspberry Pis, $5 little chips and computers, there's a few hundred of them, by the way, all of this stuff can be miniaturized. I'll give you another example. I've taken the entire Wikipedia dump, everything, all the text, and I put it on a $5 Raspberry Pi. Now, you might say, why would you do that? Because it's not so much the information, Jim, it's our pathway that we make through that information. It's how we weave our life through that tapestry of data that's around us. That is what uniquely makes the footprint of our life. Well, and for the first time, the consumer is getting used to that kind of interaction. So I get up in the morning, if I get in the car, at a certain time during the morning at 6.40, yeah. it knows where I'm going. Now, mind you, it could access my calendar to know where it's going, but it tells me how many minutes it is to Orange Theory. Yeah. Afterwards, it says, do you want me to pre-order the nectar juice two doors down since you're <laughs> finishing your thing? Now, what's interesting is every consumer is getting these kind of outputs, getting this kind of interaction. People talk about, you know, they go to Starbucks, so it tells you where the closest Starbucks is, where how far yeah. it is. All these things, but the reality is the consumer is more likely to embrace this than we are deploying it. And and the expectations, I mean, this is, you talked about hyper-local. This is hyper-personalization, is it not? Exactly. And that's why it's a revolution. And a lot of people banty that word around and it completely bypassed all the notable people in technology. When when Jeff Bezos walked on that stage in 2014 and introduced the Fire Phone, which kind of caught on fire, you know, didn't do well, they also noticed this very odd-looking cylinder device called an Echo. And I'm like, what is that? Uh, well, the whole event was just dumb. And everybody ignored it for a couple of years, and then boom, the statistics and numbers started coming out. It was organic adoption. And the first cohort to adopt it 
was shocking people. It was the average person that was buying the most goods for the household. And generally, statistically, in a traditional family, it's the wife buying the goods for the family. They have 97% of control of the wallet, whether uh, that's well-known or not, that's a fact. And so they were using this system to, to make double time. While they were preparing lunch for the kids or doing other things, they were asking questions, setting timers, getting the weather, finding out what traffic conditions were like, getting world news, listening and consuming what this new modality is that we call podcasts. And there's a lot of consumption being taken onto these devices, but the limitation is because of the lack of vision at the companies that are making it. They threw it out there, it stuck to the wall, and now they're like, holy cow, what do we do with this? And the consumers are already saying, but the problem is it's silos. Every company wants a silo. Uber wants to silo their data. You know, Amazon wants to silo their data. Apple, when they do get involved uh, infrequently into the voice world, and they should have owned it, they silo their data. The consumer does not silo their data. The consumer is their data. So what I say about hyper-contextual, hyper-local, and hyper-private is that you are going to be in control of this. The pendulum has already swung. We are in the world now, especially over the last five years, where people are no longer going to click through and agree to being the product. You know, and that may have been necessary in that version of the internet, but the future people are going to be a lot more sensitive about who's getting access to my data? What are they going to do with it? How about I control my data and then I get a contract with you to be able to borrow my data only very temporarily and only under some contexts and some circumstances. When you create that model, Jim, you have now created synergy, not just for the consumer, but for everybody in the market. It's being done the wrong way. It's being done backwards, and it's going to shift. Well, it's interesting because I do a survey at most of my meetings, the big meetings, and I ask how many people of you have Amazon Prime, and virtually everybody raised their hand. <laughs> I said, a year and a half ago when Amazon Prime went up by 20%, up to $120 a year, how many of you considered shutting it down? And about five people usually, five to seven people. I said, and how many of you actually shut it down? Nobody. What is interesting about that story is you're not buying quick delivery anymore because the reality is everybody, Walmart, Target, all companies are providing for quick delivery. You can say people like the other services that Amazon provides, everything from their books and their videos and everything else. So you can get you know some of this with it. But the reality is the reason why people are willing to pay is they're willing to pay for value. And if I believe that I love shopping with Amazon because it's so easy, but it also knows me. It takes decisions out of the equation, which makes my life easier. So question then is, you know, beyond commerce, do you really even need the devices or will voice eventually very quickly surround you? Exactly, Jim. This is brilliant. And I got to cover the Amazon Prime too, because I think you're on such a great thread there. So yes, voice is the end of the device. We're already at the end of the app. Anybody listening to us, even people that are in the industry of technology, how many apps did you really download? And then go to people who are just average people and, you know, non-technical type of jobs and ask them how many apps they've downloaded. They're not downloading them anymore. So we're at peak app. We're already on declining app. It's already 
done. We're going to be a peak device. And what that essentially means is, of course, you know, slowly gets better. It's going to be on your head in some cases, in your ear, maybe in front of your eye. The Apple glasses are definitely going to happen. And people who follow my Twitter stream will see what it's going to look like. I'm not advocating that that is the end all and be all. The last interface is really just voice. And it really doesn't matter what the conduit is. Steve Jobs made an incredible statement. And I think it's extremely valuable for anybody to understand. And he said, you know, I don't mind doing this deal with AT&T because at some point in time, they're going to be rendered to be just dumb pipes, dumb pipes. And that was a vernacular that most people thought was disparaging. But in some ways it was because it was Steve Jobs. But there was also something else he was trying to lay across. It's the abstraction layers that us technologists build on top of existing technology infrastructure. Let's look at the electricity infrastructure. When the electricity infrastructure was invented, it was for the light bulb only. Nobody imagined electric motors. Nobody imagined that it would power mostly computers at this point. Mostly computers or motors are the reason for electricity to exist at this moment. Lights are a very small percentage of the use of electricity. AI is going to become like electricity. You're not even going to pay for it. It's going to be so optimized. It's going to be on a chip. If I can take the entire Wikipedia knowledge, it's essentially the knowledge of humanity, and I can put it on a $5 device, and I can have it local, and I can have a conversation with it for, I've estimated to about 37,000 hours, I can have a continuous conversation, and that's a base estimate. So imagine if we view artificial intelligence just like we do electricity, that we flip a switch and it's available to us at an extremely low cost. We're still paying the electric company, but the electric company is no longer about just turning on light bulbs. It's about powering our entire world. That's where AI is going. And the front end interface to AI is what I call the last interface. It's voice. And even if you let Elon Musk implant probes in your brain, there's only one thing it's going to listen to, your inner voice. It's a voice you hear when you read. Humans are voice-based in their brain. It's part of the phonological loop of Broca's area and Warnicke's area. So the last interface is voice. And it's funny because at the end of the day, whether you speak it or you think it as a sentence, it's still going to be the same context. Nobody's going to read your random thoughts because that's like trying to catch butterflies in a net. You know, you're never going to find out what the context are because random thoughts are in the right hemisphere or just ready to be collected by the left hemisphere as a conversation. So AI becomes a utility. This is happening in the next five years. Most of AI that we can do within an Echo device will be able to be on a single chip. That means it can be anywhere. You can literally, other than factual information that's timely, like a traffic report, like what just happened in the news, everything else is going to be hyperlocal. I call it, rather than 2,000 miles away, two nanometers away, everything will be on a chip. And the world changes when we put all of Wikipedia, all of human knowledge, every book, every video, every sound, ever recorded, just two nanometers away. And then we have, that's the revolution. That's part of this voice for a thing. So it's not just the voice. It's not just talking to computers. It's that, in some ways, it's kind of me calling the computer revolution, the keyboard revolution, of course. But it's the best I can come up with 
because it's not really just AI, because AI has been used for decades. It is how we interact with that AI. Does that make sense, Jim? Yeah. And, and you know, to bring it home then, what do you see right now is the best application of voice in financial services? What are we missing and what do we have to move to quickly? Great question, Jim. Every single brand, every single company listening to me should find out what their voice persona is. This is vitally important. It's okay. It's like approaching a company in 1997 and telling them to get a website. They're like, what do I do? Well, at least put your card on the website because that's the very first websites were more or less business cards or a brochure. And then you can kind of figure it out. But the very first thing you need to do as a business is say, we've spent billions, millions, sometimes trillions of dollars in our brand image and equity. We know what our visual logo looks like. What does our sonic logo look like? What's our tone? What's the voice of our brand? Where did this person grow up? Because it's going to be a person. What gender are they? These are all kinds of challenging questions, especially today. But you have to face this right at this moment. And then you have to ask yourself a big question as a brand. Do I want the default voice of Echo and Siri and Google to be the voice of my brand? I would say that's like taking your logo and using Times Roman or Helvetica as your font. It makes no sense. And that needs to be done right now. If you're a Fortune 500 brand, if you're in a financial institution, you're a bank, I ask you right now, what's the voice of your bank? And I can help you. Guys like Jim can help you. There's a lot of people out there. There aren't very many people that can do this at this point. So get the voice of your bank and your brand. Next thing is offer utility. Of course, make an app a skill for all the major voice platforms. If you have an app, well, you better be making a microphone right next to the search bar right now so that people can actually talk. At the very least, find the aspects within that app that the customer wants to utilize. And then at one point in time, you know what you're going to do? It's just going to be a microphone, right? Your app is just going to be a microphone. And then why not it be the voice of your brand? A voice that you can hear in three and a half seconds and know it's the brand of Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Uh, anybody else listening, even a small savings and loan. Every one of these brands will have a voice. You want to know something about the human voice? The average person can discern 16.9 million voices. We can recognize voices better than we could recognize pictures. We can discern them, but you have to know what the, the cues are. It's not linguistics. It has a lot more to do that. It has to do with the sonic envelopes, the delivery, the pauses, the uh, you know gesticulations, all the different things that you don't see but are heard or you actually see, but sometimes you hear in the voice. So anyway, that's what I would do today and get on the Echo platform and make your app voiceified immediately. And it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. So, Brian, you're you're a wealth of knowledge. And, and geez, we could go on days and weeks talking about this stuff because it's so dynamic. And the intersection of AI and voice just gets so exciting on what can happen. How do people follow you if they want to know, you know, what's happening latest? Because I know you, you're like a breaking news story all the time because you always are, you know, you, you combine the, oh, by the way, guess what I did 30 years ago with, oh, by the way, this is what's going to happen 40 years from now. Um, it's great learning, but how do they how do they keep in touch with you? 
Well, follow me on social media. Uh, I write at Quora, my first and last name, and you can look up the spelling. Uh, my first and last name on Twitter. Those are the two places I frequent for long form and short form writing. If you want to look at uh, what I'm doing on the uh, voice consulting area, voicefirst.expert. No .com in that word, voicefirst.expert. And, you know, reach out to me. Uh, if I can't solve it, I will find somebody that will. And if you want to do it internally as a team, fine. I will give you some pointers, free. But, you know, at the end of the day, do it before somebody else does it for you. Because if you don't establish an identity, somebody else will. Brian, thank you so much. I know one thing I want to do is I want to make sure we have you back when you publish your book. I know you're working on that now, and if not before, because it, it's always mind-blowing to know what the future can bring. But uh, thank you again, Brian. Jim, thank you so much. I'll be here anytime you have me. Take care. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and listen in every Tuesday as we interview some of the world's foremost leaders. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our amazing research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing on the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineers, Sean Rule Hoffman and Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.